Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. I think the first time I noticed that something wasn't quite right, we were in North Carolina. Every year we would go up there for a camp, and and I was the speaker for the camp, and the camp sits on a hill. There is no part of the camp that you're not either going uphill or downhill. And it's way above sea level, com- you know, compared to what we're used to. This was, this was pretty high in the mountains. We were right outside of Asheville, actually in Black Mountain area, on the side of a mountain. And we were walking from the dining room back up to the main building or back up to, I can't remember, back up to our, our um, cabin at the time. And I was so out of breath, I had to pull the old, y'all, y'all go ahead, I'll be, I'll be catching up with you in just a minute. <sighs> that kind of thing. And I knew, man, I, I should be in better health than this as a 30-something. I had gotten to about 235, 240 pounds, and I was a soft 240 pounds. Soft. And I'm reminded of those times when I go back and I look at some of these pictures. So we're, we're gathering pictures for Bennett's wedding, which, by the way, is May 15th. It's hard to believe. We're like a month away. And then I will be, a, I will be an in-law. That's just weird. Some of you already know what that's like, but I'm just, I'm still struggling here with that idea that I have a son that's going to be married. I hear you. I'm with you, brother. <laughs> so we're going through these pictures, and I look back at some of the pictures of me during that time, and I'm like, golly, wow. I didn't realize how bad I'd until I took myself out of my normal surroundings and placed myself in a situation where I was confronted with the truth that I was out of shape, cardiovascularly, physically, all around. I was just not where I needed to be. Now, I would love to say that my next thought was, okay, well, I'm going to do something about this, and I'm going to get it straight, and I'm going to... No, my next thought was, man, I'm glad I don't live on the side of a mountain in North Carolina. (laughs) <laughs> seriously I was like yep glad I don't have to do this all the time and I got back home and just went right back to everything that I'd been doing before just the status quo because status quo is always much more comfortable isn't it <laughs> just much more comfortable it's much more comfortable not to challenge yourself it's much more comfortable to just go through the motions and not really have to think about it it's much more comfortable And oftentimes, comfortability and status quo, though, becomes the enemy of what God has for us. Preach. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. We're going to look at this little pericope, this little story that just falls at the end of Matthew that oftentimes... I know at least I read through and I just kind of don't think about the significance of it and I don't take it as a mirror to look at myself and to reflect on what it might mean for me. 
I entitled this sermon, Take the Money and Lie. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. Let's stop right there. Last week, we looked at the piece of scripture right before this. And there were two people at the scene of the tomb, the guards and the Marys, right, or the women. So the guards and the women. And then an angel showed up. And an angel showed up, and what did the angel do? The ground shook. It was like an earthquake. And what did the angel do in Matthew? Yeah, but he rolled the stone away, sat on top of it, and what did the guards do at that moment? They fainted, they collapsed, they passed out. They were so fearful of what was going on, they, remember I said the irony of this, they who were there to guard a dead man ended up falling as if they were dead and passing out as if they were dead while the dead man was now alive. Right? The irony of that. So you have these guards, and they were at the scene, and they experience the angel. We don't know exactly what they saw. We just know that they had an experience that was supernatural, and they, probably much like I would have done, passed out from fear. Like a dead man. Wham! Hit the ground. They were out. Then the angel has an interaction with the women. Now, after the scene, the women go to tell the disciples. And on the way of telling their disciples what they had seen, they run into the resurrected Jesus and they worship him. And then they go on to meet with the disciples. Now, the same verbiage in the original language is used for the guards here. So the women went to tell the disciples, but now the guards, using the same phraseology, went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. Now, let me make this clear because this is a misunderstanding. They didn't hear anything that the angel said. They were passed out. They were, they were gone. So they have this experience. They faint. And when they wake up, the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. That's what they know. They know the women were there, this angel shows up, they pass out, and the tomb is empty, and the stone is rolled away. They know that it was a supernatural event, but they have no clue that Jesus has been resurrected. They don't know that. They just know the tomb is empty. And so they go and they tell the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel... They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now think about that for a second. The chief priests and the elders who were specialists in the Old Testament, who had been there when Jesus said, they asked for a sign, and do you remember what Jesus' answer? I think it's in chapter 12, maybe. What Jesus' answer is about a sign? He says, you'll see a sign eventually. It's the sign of Jonah. 
Now, why would he say it's the sign of Jonah? What happened to Jonah? He was in the belly of the well. He got coughed up, and he was alive, right? Whoa, this guy came back. He was in the well, the pit, and now he's out. So he says, look for the sign of Jonah. So they have been told what to look for, and they still don't get it. He had told them that I will destroy this and in three days rebuild it, talking about his body. He had warned them what was going to happen. But even with all of their knowledge of the Old Testament, even with all that Jesus had said in their presence, they still don't get it. And so instead of saying something supernatural has happened here, you experienced something supernatural, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty, instead of even thinking that there might be something miraculous happening, instead of even allowing their minds to go to the place where this is God's doing and we better, we better respond to this correctly, they choose a cover-up. And they pay the guards to tell a lie. Take the money and lie. Now, there have been some who, and I did for years, read this and think that the guards are... Well, who do you think the guards were? Who, who placed the guards there? Roman governor. Well, he allows it, but he doesn't actually do it. Does anybody know who does? It was, it was the priests and the elders and the guard wasn't Roman guards. They were temple guards. Now we know this from the previous section above where they ask him, they go to Pilate and they say, Pilate, look, we remember that he said after three days that he's going to be raised again and we're afraid that his disciples are going to come steal the body. So would you post a guard? And what's, what's Pilate's response? You have your guard. Go post them yourselves. So some people have made a big deal about these being Roman guards and that the Roman guards would, if they had lied that they had fallen asleep, would actually be uh, killed, murdered for falling asleep because Roman guards, Roman centurions, Roman military folk, if you were on guard and you fell asleep, it was punishable by death. But that's not what's going on here. These aren't Roman guards. These are... Jewish temple guards. And so, much more pliable, much more ready to obey whatever it is that the high priest and the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and the rulers would tell them to do. Much more ready to take the money from them and lie. And the lie... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, what's funny is, this is self-fulfilling prophecy, right? They go to Pontius Pilate and they say, look, we're afraid that his disciples are going to come steal the body at night. So when the body does get raised and is gone from the tomb, they go back to the thing that they were fearful of. Which reminds me of something that my grandmother always said. People will accuse you of doing what they would do if they had the chance. 
people always accuse you of doing what they would do if they were in your shoes, right? And so this is kind of that thing. Well, if I wanted to prove a point, I would go steal the body and lie about it. So they were worried that the body would be gone. And when it was, instead of dealing with the reality of the situation, they choose to ignore it and to lie. How often have you done that? I mean, serious. How often have you ignored the problem and believed a lie just because it's more convenient? Because the real glaring question in this pericope is why would they do that? Why would the religious leaders refuse to believe in Jesus? Why would the religious leaders refuse to face the miracle and the reality? And so I'm going to turn that question to you because I've answered that question over the past week as I've thought about this, but I want to invite you into this process. Why? This is a great question to ask when you're reading Scripture. Why do you think they refused to face the truth? Open floor. Just say it out loud. They would lose their power, yep, because they were the power brokers. It was the temple that was the most powerful part of their culture. It was the temple in Jerusalem that was powerful. So power, what else? All right, explain that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Right. So, so they blame someone else, and then so they're off the hook, right? They don't have to deal with it then. So they choose not to have to face the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Why do you think they would do that? Why would they refuse? Yes, yeah, so it's part of the smear campaign against what Jesus was creating, which was a movement. Right? So not only was it, not only was it fear of losing power, it was fear of losing influence and control over people and fear of this movement. What else? Yes. So it's a culture of shame, which we don't understand in our Western civilization, but a shame culture then, for them to be wrong, for them to carry that shame would be humiliating. So the cultural influence was part of that too. They didn't want to be shamed and they didn't want to lose their standing and be shamed for not falling in line in the first place. Because, by the way, who was it that yelled crucify him? Was it Romans? No, remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It wasn't, and it wasn't just the general crowd. It was the Jerusalemites, right? It was the people of Judea that yelled crucify him. They didn't want to lose that. It was that culture. Anything else? Right, they were prideful. 
they didn't want to admit they were wrong, which goes back to what you're saying, and then that's a shame part of their culture. And it really ties into power and influence and, and losing people to this new movement. Anything else that you can think of? They, I didn't hear that last part. Right. They didn't want to face the truth that they had a hand in the death of the Messiah, the one sent from God. Which again goes to shame and influence and power. What did they do to both, by the way, this should remind you of another story. What other story happened just a few chapters ahead of this? Where they got involved and money was involved. Judas. They paid off Judas, now they're paying off these guards. Which gives you a hint at something else that might influence their behavior. Money. Money. Money, power, influence, shame, admitting that you're wrong, pride. All of those things were part of that. And I think one other thing that came to mind as I thought about this, they also didn't want to deal with what it would mean for life change. Think about the things that would have to change in their life if everything that Jesus said and did was true. It was a paradigm shift for them. A paradigm shift that they would have lost power, they would have lost influence, they would have had to admit they were prideful or turn away their pride, they would have had to admit that they were wrong they would have been shamed, all of that. They would have had to do all of that to accept this paradigm shift, and they weren't really willing to deal with the change that that would bring to their lives. Now, guys, I submit to you that we are much more like the priests and the Pharisees than we are like the disciples and the women in the story. How often do we choose culture or power or influence? How often... Do we look at what Jesus did and say, okay, you can have this part of my life, but I'm going to hold this back, part back for myself. We don't want to make the full paradigm shift. We don't want him to take control of everything. We're afraid of what we might have to give up if we allow him to take control. Where were the disciples supposed to meet Jesus, the resurrected Jesus? Do you remember this from last week? Where did he tell the women to tell his disciples to meet him? In Galilee. And in Matthew, over and over and over again, he is making this huge point that the power brokers in Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem were afraid of the prophet and the Messiah king from Galilee. And actually, it's this way. So Jerusalem, in your perspective, Jerusalem would have been here. The Galilee is up here. So the brokers and the people with influence and the people, all of that was going on in Jerusalem, they were wrong. And the small band of misfits from the Galilee was where God was moving. There was this huge tectonic shift. 
They were moving out of the temple and into the Galilee, out of the power brokers and into the everyday person, out of the temple itself and into the everyday world, out of the people who had power and influence and into the everyday Joes, out of the people with money and influence and into the people who showed up every day and just did their jobs as fishermen and as, and as you know, women who were running households and all of those things that were going on. It was a huge tectonic shift in what was going on in the spiritual realm. And the leaders in Jerusalem refused to accept it and believe it and to comply. And so Jesus is in essence saying, I'm replacing all of that and you're left with the status quo and with nothing. I imagine it must be how the British Empire felt as it was crumbling. What once was the dominant power broker in the world was no longer important. I imagine it's going to be what Alabama fans feel when Nick Saban retires. (laughs) That's a joke, kind of. I would imagine it's how Duke and North Carolina felt and Kansas and and some of the other major blue blood basketball teams felt when they had to watch the 16, the 8, the 4, and the championship from home. It was a shift and it was unexpected and the old paradigm was gone and the new had come. Does that sound familiar? Jesus came to wreck the status quo. And he wants to wreck your status quo. He wants to shift your thoughts so that you're not molded by this world. You're not molded by a political persuasion. You're not uh, molded by uh, by what's on the news. You're not molded by, um, by North American materialism. You're not molded by... Uh, our, our, um, our, I guess, incessant reach towards comfort, but that instead you're molded by him. If God were to wreck us, how many of us would be willing to stand? If God came and blew up everything that we're used to and we went back to zero and he hit restart, how, much of, how many of us would be okay with that? got to be honest, I would struggle. If everything went back to zero and we became just nothing and we lost everything and we had to start from the ground up and all the stuff shifted in this world, would we be okay with that? Because Jesus wrecks status quo. And here's what I've also learned, that he genuinely generally shows up in those places of discomfort. So are you allowing him to change your status quo?
Verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. It says as they were directed. But the word here is the same word that's used for what Jesus did with his disciples. It's a play on the word making fun of the leaders and the rulers and the power brokers. This misfit band has the real true instruction where all of these people who think that they have all the truth sewed up tight are wrong. So they took the money and did as they... And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Matthew's writing this and he adds that last sentence there saying this is why this story is so prevalent now among you. That's in essence what he's saying. Matthew was writing to the first century Christians who were struggling with Jewish family and friends who didn't believe what they believed because they were taught uh, he, the body was stolen. And so Matthew adds this little line at the end saying, look, that was made up and they're still saying it 30 years later and it's not true. And guys, thousands of years later, it's still not true. And you might believe up here that it's true. You might believe in your headspace that it's true, but have you really let him wreck your status quo and change you? Have a take tectonic shift in your way of thinking? Have you allowed him to totally wreck selfishness and pride and power and influence and all those things in your life? Have you let him do that? Because that's what the resurrection is really all about. We got back home from North Carolina, and after a couple of weeks, I was a little bit convicted. And I told Laura, I've got to start doing something. I mean, I am overweight. I am uh, not feeling good. Uh, you know, my, my knees hurt. My ankles hurt. And I'm just, I'm just not in a good place physically, and I want to be. I used to play basketball two or three times a week. I used to go out and run a mile like it was nothing. And I can't run to the end of our block without wanting to puke. Anybody else ever feel that way? I'm like, no, I'm running really. You know, I'm fast walking down the street, and I get to the end, and I'm like, oh. And so I, Laura and I started simple. We would walk a block and jog two houses. Walk a block and jog two houses. Do you remember this, Laura? Or then we would say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna make it to that, we're gonna make it to the light post. And then we'd walk. And that's where we started. But I knew that I couldn't put up with the status quo anymore. So about 10 years ago, we started that journey. And in the first, I don't know, first six months, I went from two, a soft, soft, to 30, to 40-ish, all the way down to 210. 
And then slowly over the next however long, I've built that back up to where it's now about two, I'm, I'm about 218, 217. But a lot different, a lot healthier, because I refused the status quo. Because I said, no, I'm not going to be this soft, out-of-shape guy who can't even walk up the side of a mountain in North Carolina because I knew I wanted more out of life than huffing and puffing. So I knew something had to change. And guys, it's not easy. It's not. And three months into it, I was like, I'm not seeing any change. This sucks. I'm not going to do it anymore. But I wouldn't let myself stop. Because I refused to put up with the status quo. If there's any area in your life where you've allowed the status quo to settle in, Jesus wants to wreck it. But most importantly, spiritually. It's time for a new day. And that's the resurrection. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.